chances are that one out of 10 people that you interact with today will have mentioned depression to their primary care physician as a complaint that they have had at some point in their life. The prevalence of mental health is no surprise to anybody. There are physiologic, behavioral, and genetic approaches that we often talk about to help with conditions such as insomnia, anxiety, depression, and stress disorders. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Loretta Bruning, who is the author of Habits of a Happy Brain, about some behavioral approaches to understanding the hardwiring of your brain from a mammalian perspective. We go into what is the inner drivers of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and cortisol, and endorphins. And we will look into this from a perspective of a mammalian view. This is a very interesting talk that breaks some of the conventional model of mental health. And you'll learn a lot, and I hope you walk away with some refreshing ideas about how to navigate your own mental health. Okay, I'm here today with Dr. Loretta Bruning, who's the author of Habits of a Happy Brain. And I'm excited to speak with her today. We're gonna be speaking about um, the emotions, um, neurotransmitters, uh, related to happiness and how to retrain your your brain for happiness. So welcome. And, hi, uh, thanks for hi. having me. It, it's great to be here with you. And um, I thought we could maybe start off with a little bit of your background and how you became an expert in understanding how to uh, retrain your brain, you know, kind of the science of positivity, those types of areas. Sure. Um, so I was a college professor for 25 years. I always had a social science background in different social sciences. And I, so I always followed psychology. And over time, I had this bad feeling that my students were not especially motivated and my kids were not especially motivated. And I discussed this with my colleagues and it seemed like people in their world were not especially motivated either. And so that's how I got interested in motivation. And I had always been exposed to monkey studies about motivation. And so I just started looking into it more and more and I discovered the brain chemicals that make us feel good and bad. And that's the core of human motivation is your brain turns on a happy chemical to motivate you to go towards something and an unhappy chemical to motivate you to uh, retreat from something. And when you understand what these chemicals do in animals, it's so easy to understand what turns them on and off in our own lives. So okay. that's how I, so I took early retirement and focused on this. Wonderful. And so in, We'll talk towards the end about some of your current work and your podcasts and the books that you've written. Um, the uh, area that I'd like to jump into is just sort of some basics. So talking about the difference between like the mammal brain and um, some of the other species brain. So you talk in the book a lot about the limbic system and the cortex. And if you could just kind of set the stage about these 
the differences in species um, and what humans are dealing with um, as far as the cortex and limbic system and why, um, you know, how it compares to. Sure. Well, the simple way to think about it is like we have two different brains. So we have the cortex, which is capable of using language. So when you talk to yourself, it's all in your cortex and you maybe tell yourself reasons why you did stuff, but your cortex doesn't really know why, which we all know that feeling. And the reason is because inside our cortex, which is unique to humans, we have basically the same core operating system as all mammals. And that operating system controls the chemicals. It controls the happy chemicals and the unhappy chemicals. And it does things for reasons that are simple. First, it wants to promote your survival. So it sees some, it, when it sees something good for your survival, it turns on the happy chemicals. And when it sees something bad for your survival, it turns on the unhappy chemicals. But it defines survival in a quirky way, which is that whatever turned on your happy chemicals when it was young, it says, oh, that's good for me. And whatever turned on your unhappy chemicals when you were young, it says, whoa, that's gonna kill me. So we all go around with this tangle of old neural pathways built from the random experience of our past because from a, a monkey world, it's very easy to see why, is that in a monkey world, if you see a plant that's good for you today, it's gonna be good for you in the future. And if you see a predator that's dangerous today, it's gonna to be dangerous in the future. So that's how our brain works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when we're talking about um, happiness as a subject, how does that fit into this structure of, of uh, or positivity, I should say, how does that fit into this structure? Well, when our happy chemicals turn on, it feels so good that we're like, whoa, I want more of that. How can I get more of that? And from a monkey perspective, monkeys don't have a supermarket. They don't have a pantry. So when they're hungry, they're like, whoa, how can I find the food that, you know, that tasted so good yesterday and the fruit that tastes much better than those yucky, boring leaves that mm -hmm. they mostly fill up on. So your brain is always trying to say, how can I get whatever made me feel good before? And in the modern world, when it's so easy to fill up your belly, it takes like new and improved to turn on the happy chemicals. And that's what we're all sort of hankering after. Okay. And also, you know, in a human world, like, you know, if, if you were acting on your limbic system all day long, um, that would possibly get you into a lot of trouble, break yeah. down a lot of relationships, lose jobs, that type of thing. So, I mean, what is going on in the human experience that's like navigating this limbic yeah, system? Yeah, good question. So, um, if you, as you correctly point out, if you just run on your monkey brain, well, that will get you into trouble. And so many people go to the other extreme. They try to typecast the monkey brain as the bad guy and the cortex is the good guy. But now we're learning that if you just run on your cortex, that will also get you in trouble. One reason is because, you know, people who never do anything that feel good and try to just do um, some 
distant goal all the time. You make yourself miserable. And the other reason is because you basically lie to yourself and you think, oh, I do the right time, the right thing all the time. And then by 10 o'clock at night, you're just like, oh, I'm so tired of doing the right thing when everybody else is a jerk. <laughs> so you open up a bottle of scotch or whatever is your preferred way of paying yourself back for the so that's why my solution is that your two brains are designed to work together they have to make peace they have to learn how to work together you have to teach them about each other help them make friends i love it yeah i mean this is one of the my favorite parts of the book um, the ha habits of a happy brain book when i read that section um when you said that you know we're we're sort of walking around um, pretending like this limbic system, you know, is, you know, it's almost like we're too good to think that actually <laughs> this is actually going on. And I like how it's refreshing um, that you're not trying to squash it. Thank you. So I call it self-acceptance and I call the cortex is your internal public relations agency because your cortex is always trying to present you in a good light. And you know, there's that saying, don't believe your own press clippings. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I should also give a little credit to Steven Pinker. Um, I think is in his book, How the Mind Works, he talked about the Swiss army knife model of your brain. And you know how, a, Everybody's looking for, when they study the brain, like where, what spot is the real you? And he said, there is no one spot. Your brain is like a Swiss army knife. It's all these different tools, but they don't know if they're, they're all separate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so they don't, there's no like core holding them together really. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's talk about a couple things that um, happen like political correctness is a big thing you talk about and then I threw in a question when we were offline about passive aggress aggressiveness because I, I feel like when people aren't in tune with their um, of how to navigate their limbic system they get passive aggressive yeah so um, uh, passive aggressive so aggressive is sort of like a, a, the concept of anger and if you, uh, you know, the, the cliche that people sort of deny their anger and it's not polite to be angry. So people have to find other ways to release it. And um, in the modern world, we're actually doing better than this, than we realize, better at this than we realize. Because when, when I was young, there was this cliche of like two guys in a bar, they get into a fight and, you know, in the fifties, they pulled out knives in the sixties, they just pulled out their fists, you know, and by the eighties, like, Oh my God, even if they said one angry word, it would be totally unacceptable. Yeah. So we've gone to that extreme where we're expected to like love everybody all the time. It's totally not a realistic standard. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that people would be passive aggressive. So another way of understanding it is the idea that your brain evolved to meet your needs and it did not evolve to like love everybody else all the time. Like other people are often an obstacle to meeting your needs and your monkey brain is thinking like, whoa, you're a pain in the neck. 
And so a little self-acceptance, so then you won't be so angry. You could sort of say, well, geez, I'm a mammal living in a world of monkeys <laughs> and it's frustrating. And I'm going to give myself some free time to, to, de to defuse, to discharge without alcohol, without anger, just to give myself some space to meet my unmet needs yeah. so that I don't get so annoyed with other people for preventing me from meeting my needs. Yeah, makes sense. Makes complete sense. And then along the lines of political correctness, and he, um, you talk a lot about that. And um, I'm assuming that's like a, like a cortex dominant scenario. Yeah, so um, it differs for different people depending on where they live. So um, I happen to live in a very, very political, correct, politically correct niche of the world. So I wrote a separate book about that. So I'm not sure which book you're referring to, so I'll explain both. So I have one called The Science of Positivity, um, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Retraining by um, changing your brain chemistry. And that one's a lot about cynicism, which is the sort of intellectualized way of... Um... So in all my work, I talk about how monkeys are very competitive, actually. And there's sort of strict hierarchies in the monkey world, which is not talked about today. And a lot of my research is based on monkey research done in the past. So everybody has this urge to be in a one-up position and then sort of denies it. And then they're sort of angry at other people who they perceive to be in the one-up position. So in the science of positivity, I talk about that intellectualized form of that anger. And then I have another book called How I Escaped Political Correctness and You Can Too. So I don't know if you're referring that. was to that. the one, yes. Yeah, thanks. So thanks for reading that. That's my special baby. Um, <laughs> that was a self-published book. And I talk about how um, I was fearful of being ostracized from the herd. And I very much understand anybody's feelings about that. And it's understanding our mammalian urge to be in a herd and how we feel like our survival is threatened when we're, when we're um, isolated. But that's only one urge, that's the oxytocin urge. Then we have the serotonin urge to be in the one-up position and political correctness can put you in the one-up position without ever having to get off your couch and do anything. Mm -hmm. And then if you say one politically incorrect thing, then you're suddenly fallen and now you're at the bottom of the social hierarchy no matter how hard you work and so it's um understanding that you know your fear of that is sort of natural and then there's the dopamine aspect of it so dopamine is our urge to increase rewards which in the state of nature involves a lot of um goal seeking step-by-step -step prediction and uh, predicting about which steps will bring where to invest your energy and that's very hard and frustrating because like if you think about it, when a monkey climbs toward a piece of fruit, sometimes it's disappointed and the fruit is like rotten when it gets there. So we all make predictions. And so politics is sort of a way to predict how things are gonna go. And 
And then we all get frustrated because things don't always go our way. Mm -hmm. So politics is sort of a way to deal with that frustration. Mm -hmm. And when you join a political mindset, you buy into their prediction. Mm -hmm. And then when things go wrong, you don't have to blame yourself because you could blame the other party mm -hmm. for making things go wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's get into some of the heart of, of these tools and the, the matter at hand here. So when, you know, when people come to me as, as a physician, it's like they're, they're dealing with a lot of chronic illness, um, sometimes chronic depression, anxiety, sleep disruption, maybe a chronic um, condition that's causing is like a driver of a mental health condition. So it's a mm. mental health issues is a secondary yes. issue. Yes. They've learned some helplessness or they've, they've kind of started to get despair and give up. They're no longer positive. Um, and like, if you were to, if I was to say, you know what, you should just be positive. You should, you know, be, look at the world positively and everything's going to be okay. Um, having been in that you know, scenario, um, it probably wouldn't, they wouldn't know what to do with that. It wouldn't land as well. Um, however, um, you have a different approach uh, where you're actually giving people's tools to understand how these key hormones and neurotransmitters work and how to navigate them. Can you just kind of take us through just like a general structure of dopamine, oxytocin, cortisol, um, serotonin, and, um, endorphin system and then maybe talk about some just basic steps and give us some examples. Sure. And um, if you don't mind, something beneath that, like whenever a person feels stuck, so this is natural. We are all stuck in the neural pathways we built when we were young because of what's called myelinization, which is um, myelin is what transforms our neurons from skinny little um, things to super highways. So we are all born with billions of neurons, but no connections between them. And whatever you experience when you're young, um, it gets myelinated and your brain relies on those myelinated pathways today because they're efficient. So it's the same thing if I was gonna drive from California to New York, I would use the highways that exist rather than trying to drive in a straight line because so that's, so that's the self-acceptance piece of it. Now, we don't need to go around thinking, oh, I got off to a bad start and I have a bad highway system and everybody else has a good highway system because you can imagine that everyone in the world has a neural network built from the crapshoot of their early childhood experience no child has this perfect roadmap to the future. If you were not nurtured, well, that's tough. But people who get too much nurturing don't learn self-reliance. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's been a parent, like you know how, like there's no perfect middle ground. Life is hard. So the good news is that we can build new neural pathways, but it takes a lot of repetition. And when you understand the happy chemicals, then you understand what you're already doing to turn them on. And then you have the knowledge that you can rewire yourself to turn them on in new ways when you feed your brain new experiences repeatedly. Okay. So let's take serotonin, for example. 
you know, so okay. people are familiar that if they're feeling sad, one of the strategies is, t- is to raise serotonin. And in your book, you talk about, well, what is beneath serotonin, which um, if I'm not mistaken, it's a sense of um, feeling like you have good social status is one element of it. Um, yes. And um, yeah, so, so if you could just go into serotonin and because I think people are very familiar with that neurotransmitter. Good. So um, no one is, has heard this perspective on serotonin, I would imagine, but it was actually reported in the New York Times in the 1980s. So there was a lot of monkey research on the one-up dominant submission rituals among monkeys. And it's important to know that this is not aggression. So monkeys are like um, one monkey approaches another and they clarify which monkey is in the one-up position and which is in the one-down position. It's exactly like if you've ever studied a foreign language, a lot of languages have like, before I can talk with you, I have to either speak to you as someone who's above me or below me. Uh, Um, In Spanish, it's usted or tu. And so, yeah. So a lot of languages are like that because that's how the monkey brain works. And we humans are constantly comparing ourselves. We mammals are constantly comparing ourselves. And when you see that you're in the one-up position, your brain releases a little bit of serotonin and it's not aggression, but it's like, I'm the man, you know, (laughs) I got it going on. Right. And that feels good, but guess what? Your body metabolizes that in a few minutes. And then you want more, Uh which is why people are constantly driving themselves crazy, looking for ways to feel a little bit cooler and more powerful Mm -hmm. and whatever. So So I want to pause there because I want to just make sure that people understand that you you feel like if if you were to judge that about yourself, it is a seed of self-hate. Yes. And so I think it's really important because, you know, there's a lot of books out there about thinking positive and, but this is, this is a core unique thing about you. And I yes, really because want- all these books tell you that ego is bad, which is insane. It's like telling your inner mammal that you hate it and you want to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's a really key thing. So I just want to keep holding that for this conversation because I could see you know, even um, when I think about myself in that situation, my initial response based on what I've learned about having those thoughts of like, oh, I feel like the man, you know, you, you start to feel shameful about it. Um, yes, and, yes, and yes, so, exactly, exactly. And so um, I think it's really important for us to keep, keep in, uh, for this talk to, to keep like staying out of that place because um, that would not be what you're the gift of yes. this is. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, the other extreme of it, if you go around thinking, I'm great, then we all know that that could get into trouble. Right. But the, the more uh, palatable daily life, what's really going on is people know they're not supposed to say I'm great, but they go around thinking everybody else is a jerk, which is effectively the same thing. Right. So it's really... more modest and more kind to to feel happy with your strengths than to think everybody else is a jerk right right gotcha okay (laughs) 
Yeah. So, so, but here's the important part I haven't gotten to yet. When I think I'm in the one up position, I get a little squirt of serotonin, but when I think I'm in the one down position, my brain releases a little bit of cortisol, which mm. is, which creates the survival threat feeling. And in the monkey world, that makes sense because when a monkey is in the one down position, it does not get the banana. It does not get the mating opportunity. As long as it's surrounded by stronger monkeys, it's not going to get what it needs to keep its mm -hmm. genes alive. And the survival threat feeling is saying like, whoa, you better do something about this or your genes are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. So that's what we're giving ourselves all day, every day, when we go around saying, everybody else is bigger than me and it's so unfair. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so you have these kind of, um, polar opposite responses, cortisol and serotonin. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then let's get into dopamine. So even in your area, cause you're down close, you're in the Bay area. And so the big thing down there is dopamine fasting. That's like the new, yes. new, uh, biohack. <laughs> and, and how we got there is probably a whole other topic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But social media has a lot to do with it, I think, and yes. um, other things, technology. But um, so dopamine's another interesting kind of thing where in your, you know, you mentioned a lot of a dopamine comes from where you're, you're having like achievements and you know, you're, you're, you're on task and your accomplishments. And, yes. and so, um, that's like a, a really good way to look at dopamine. Is there any kind of dark side to dopamine that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, since you brought up the dopamine fasting, so obviously there has to be a dark, there's a dark side and then there's just a downside and a frustrating side and all of those. Yeah. So um, let's start again with a monkey perspective. So let's say I'm a monkey and I'm hungry and I see some fruit in the distance. So Dopamine turns on, it's like, whoa, there's a way to meet my needs. There's something good. There's something I need. And so we humans get that. Like if we see a job opening, like that's something that could meet my needs and I think I can get it. So it takes both pieces. Like I need it and I think I can get it. So it's the expectation of a reward. Now, once you get that first burst of dopamine, it feels good, but it feels good because it releases energy. And in the animal world, you need that energy to, to pursue the resource. Now, in the human world, you may be sitting on your butt on the couch, playing a video game and creating that illusion. But you also may be someone who's been indoctrinated that you need to be a rock star or superstar in order to feel good. And so when you first see that sort of superstar illusion, you get a big burst of dopamine. But then after a while, if you, if you don't see yourself getting any closer to the goal, you don't keep getting the dopamine. Just like if the monkey doesn't get closer to the fruit, like every step closer to the fruit drips some more dopamine. But when the monkey finally gets the fruit, then the dopamine stops because it's already done its job. Mm -hmm. So that's the treadmill aspect of daily life is like, I want it, I want it, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. Nothing, you know? So that's the natural job of dopamine 
It doesn't mean society is bad. It doesn't mean your spouse is a disappointment. It doesn't mean your boss is a jerk. It's like nothing can make you happy all the time because our brain evolved to seek and that's what kept our ancestors alive. And on the one hand, you don't want the dips to be too big by just find a new goal, but you don't want the ups to be too high, like driving yourself insane, like in a frenzy, staying up all night, pursuing a goal because you're really robbing from tomorrow's dopamine. Right. And so like things similar to social media and when people are seeking acknowledgement through those particular platforms, like checking their social statuses and like buttons and, you know, how many people are following me. And those are little dopamine hits, right? That people are getting in some way. Yeah. So here's the, the complexity. It's really all of them in the sense. It's so dopamine is the expectation of a reward. So if I got a nice email from Adam yesterday, then when I have a free moment and I looking for something to feel good about. So yesterday, the good feeling built a pathway to my dopamine that says, oh, if I go to my phone, I'm going to get another good feeling. But then when I go to my phone, I don't have a nice email from Adam today. So that's why we have that ups and downs. But the other part of it is that in most of human history, we lived in a tribe. And we were constantly in that tribe. We were never alone. And modern humans have made the choice to live independently. <laughs> and yet, when you have a free moment, your brain is saying like, whoa, I'm alone. Nobody knows where I am. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares if I live or die, you know? Yeah. And um, we have the social network that we invest in, that we create reciprocal bonds. But if you don't, but if you invest your energy on online, then when your inner mammal feels isolated, then that's where you go to to look for your oxytocin. Yeah. And then in addition to all that, if the number of likes is giving you your serotonin, then that too. Yeah. And I do like how in your book when in some of the sections on oxytocin, you speak about that, you know, one of the ways to develop trust, again, can be social networks and can be platforms where maybe it's a safer way for you to connect with people. Because I know a lot of people coming back from abuse or trauma or um, social isolation will first connect through social media with a group of like-minded individuals. And through that, they slowly build their trust back. Yes. Yes, exactly. It can be used for good or bad, just like every technology that came before. And it's really fascinating to know that every new technology that comes about, people wring their hands and say, oh my God, the world is going to hell in a handbasket because of this new technology. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to see if we can talk a little bit about oxytocin because one of the interesting points you've made in your in writing um, is that humans the larger your cortex the more you kind of come in the world unwired, unwired. for survival yeah, yeah. yeah and i think it's just a sense that your cortex is 
it's kind of like a wide open space that is dominating you, but you don't have survival skills. So if you could talk about how um, parenting and motherhood or um, bonding plays a role in, in sort of the survival mechanisms and, you know, also when people become empty nesters or when they lose primary love objects and how that manifests. Sure. So um, we are all born, as I said, with billions of neurons, but almost no connections between them. Now compare that to a reptile. A reptile has very few neurons, but they're all hooked up when it's born. So a reptile leaves home at the instant of birth because it's already hardwired with all the survival skills it needs. And if it doesn't leave home fast enough, a parent tries to eat it because it's like defective. So humans are born more vulnerable than any other creature. So the more neurons you have, the longer it takes to wire them up. And I explain this a lot more in the book. And so um, we need like a good couple of decades to wire up our neurons. Now, most of us think that once we leave home, we forget all that stupid stuff that our parents told us, and we even reinvented the world. <laughs> and the reason for this is because in puberty, we get a second spurt of myelin. And so we easily build new neural pathways in our teen years. And because of that, we build neural pathways from the shit our peers tell us and the stuff we hear in whatever choice of inputs we give us. In addition to the core neural pathways we built from our earlier influences. So, um, Oxytocin is that fear of, uh, uh, is that sense of reward when you are in a group. It's social support because in a group you can lower your guard in herd animals. They lower their guard and eat when they're in a group because they know that if a predator comes, they'll have more notice so they can lower their guard and meet their needs. So, in your teen years, every mammal in adolescence transfers its attachment from its mother to its group because in the state of nature, your mother's not going to survive forever and you don't want to be isolated. So that's why teenagers have such life or death feelings about being in a group. But if you just slavishly follow the groups and the other teenagers, then we all know that you're not going to have very good survival skills as an adult. And yet we wire our brain from whatever got rewards when we were young. So that's a terrible conundrum that we all have. <laughs> okay. So um, the oxytocin is really released in those moments of connection. Um, like when there's a, a bond and a trust between an individual in a group? Yes. However, um, in today's like psychobabble world, this concept of trust has been so elevated to such a high level that everybody ends up frustrated 
with everybody they know because nobody reaches that level of trust that we have idealized. So instead of romanticizing the trust in the animal world, I spend a lot of time helping people get real about the trust in the ah. animal world. So if you were a gazelle, the way you would get your oxytocin, they find a herd and then they push their way to the center of the herd where it's safer from predators and all the gazelles around you are more likely to be eaten by a predator when you're in the middle. Hmm. So even when you're in a group, everybody in your group is still quite competitive. And you can remember like a team group where you really wanted to be in the group, but then once you were in the group, you saw, whoa, there's a lot of nasty backbiting. And the same in your career and the same in your family. Like you really want to be in this group, but you want them to love each other every minute. And you're like, what's wrong with my group? There's all this nasty backbiting. Right. So there's threads of trust, but there's also these other competing forces of nature. So looking out for yes. oneself versus looking out for the group, it's always seems yes. like it's. And the amazing thing is what keeps a mammal group together despite this um, competitive self-interest is this one thing, it's very simple, is a common enemy. So when there's a common enemy, mammals stick together. When there are no predators, they spread apart and it's every man for himself. So every group that you're in, notice how much they talk about the common enemy. That's all I talk about because that bonds them. Okay, that's interesting. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, well, coming from a standpoint of someone who, let's say, just kind of give us some examples of someone taking some steps with the information that you're sharing, someone who's um, dealing with anxiety, um, like chronic anxiety. And I know you just, you have a book out on anxiety as well. Um, so of course, I, I hope that people who want to go in deeper will actually you know, buy the books and watch your videos on your website. Um, however, I, I'd like to just, maybe we can use this to kind of, as an example, someone who has been dealing with chronic anxiety, how they would use some of the principles you're talking about as a kind of action steps. Sure. So in my book, Tame Your Anxiety, so I have this very simple model, which is um, imagine a horse and rider. This is an analogy that many people have heard in some cultures. It's a rider on an elephant. In other cultures, a rider on a donkey. And so the horse and rider have to work together. The, the horse alone is not going to get good results. The rider alone isn't going to get good results. And if they fight with each other, they're not going to get good results. So they have to understand each other in order to work together. Now, to make that a very practical methodology, I have a 22-minute exercise in the book. Um, so I, did I say the name of the book? I can't yes. even remember. Yeah, yes. okay. So um, it's a simple exercise, takes 22 minutes. So when you've so first, I guess people should understand that cortisol is what gives you that survival threat feeling and it lasts in your body for about an hour, but it has a half-life of 20 minutes. So in 20 minutes, you'll be done with half of your cortisol, but during that time, everything you look at is going to look bad. So... On the one hand, when you have this survival threat feeling, you urgently want to do something to make it stop because that's the job it evolved to do. 
And yet anything you try to do is going to look bad. And you're going to think, oh my God, I have no good options. Everything is horrible. So what I'm suggesting is first take one minute to figure out what your problem is, what, what you really need, what you want, what you're missing for one minute, set a timer, just so like in case of emergency, if there really was an emergency or to be honest with yourself about what the real issue is. Then take 20 minutes to do something that you enjoy to give the cortisol time to metabolize. And when I say something you enjoy, so it doesn't mean call the pizza man and eat the whole pizza, but <laughs> um, so I help you develop a list of healthy ways all it takes is distraction because the minute you think about something other than the threat, the cortisol starts to metabolize. Mm -hmm. If you focus on the threat, you're going to just get more cortisol and more threat and more evidence of threat and more cortisol, and you're going to be in a spiral. So the idea is healthy distraction for 20 minutes. And then you take one minute to find um, a solution that you could take the first step. And what matters is the first step because what I explain is if you were a gazelle and you smell a lion, you don't focus on the lion, you focus on the escape path. So you figure out the path and you take the first step. And the minute you take the first step, you start feeling better. Mm. And then you take the next step. Wonderful, very practical. Um, I, I love this. Um, and, you know, one of the practical examples I've used from your book, um, Habits of a Happy Brain, um, for myself is I have this, um, you know, I, I study a lot of the genetics and the uh, hormones of, of uh, mental health. And, you know, I tested myself on this one pathway called catecholamine methyltransferase, which is COMT. And what that means is I have a tendency for like lower, or I burn through dopamine really fast and it goes low in my genetics. And so I use one of the principles of your dopamine books, which is like to actually celebrate little mini accomplishments that I've had during the day. Mm. So like, yes, exactly. you know, if, you yeah. finish, if you finish like a group of five tasks and you just move on, keep moving on. Exactly, moving on. exactly, exactly. It's like you, you never feel what it's like to accomplish anything. Exactly. And you have to have those feelings to know you're on the right path. And anyway, exactly. so I thank you for that suggestion because it's helped me just to like take some time and say, wow, I just, I did it. You know, I, I just, you know, had a very successful meeting. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy that celebration. If like a mini celebration. Um, yes, exactly. And sometimes like when I have like a hundred things to do and I, I can just think of like, oh, I'll just work until I pass out and then wake up tomorrow and work until I pass out. That's just not healthy. So when I say, okay, I have two more hours until I pass out, I'm going to try to get, I'm going to do these three things and then I'm going to be happy about having done those three things instead of saying, well, maybe I can squeeze in four and five. Yeah. And I'm tempted to try to squeeze in four and five, but I have to say, no, I got to be happy and think of like, wow, I'm a person who got those three things off my table and tomorrow is another day. And tomorrow I'm going to get those three more things done. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, if there's any closing messages you'd like to give us, that'd be great. And then we'd love to hear about um, 
you know, what you're up to, um, what, how people can follow you, and just a little bit more about uh, the trajectory of um, kind of how people could keep in touch with you. Great. Tell me what, oh yes, the one more thing. Okay, what I always bring up if it hasn't come up is our mania for social comparison. So this is a normal, natural thing that every mammal is constantly comparing itself to others. I guess we talked about it a little, but it's important to be honest with yourself about it, that you are doing it, that if you condemn it in others, that you're condemning yourself. And if you deny it in yourself, then you project it onto others and you say, oh, they're always trying to get ahead and they're always judging me. But in fact, you're doing the same thing. So first to just ratchet down your anger about the whole thing through self-acceptance and then find healthy ways. And it, like all the others, it's like healthy ways to compare myself positively and then let go of it and not expect to be on a serotonin high all the time, but to just find peace and like, you know what, I've done pretty well for myself and now I'm going to move on to the next thing. Nice. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And uh, just any um, ways you can share like uh, the best way to follow you or, and uh, find your books and your, in your, I think you're offering some courses too, right? Uh, yeah. So I have a website, innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I have information about all of my books. I have free videos, which I've tried to make them fun for the people in your life that have a five minute attention span and <laughs> only want it to be fun. I even made a two minute animation for people who don't have a five minute <laughs> And um, I use spaghetti for neurons in the videos. And so um, uh, uh, tr I have a training program for um, coaches and people who want um, support in going through the material in a deeper fashion. And I have blogs and podcasts, and I have a five-day Happy Chemical Jumpstart, which will send you one email a day for five days that um, explains all of this and also puts you on my monthly mailing list. Great. Great. Well, thank you for being on with us today. Um, I learned a lot, and it was great to um, kind of see your kind of the teachings in your books to come to life and, and to be able to interact with you. So thank you for your time. Sure. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Um, I, I just want to say you, um, you, you, you did a really good job of like putting my stuff in your own words. It was, it was oh, very nice. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Because like I, I just hear the same stuff over and over. So it was nice to hear it in your words. Oh, I appreciate that. My, my cortex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two cortexes are better than one. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take All right. Care. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I hope that it enriched your life as much as it has enriched mine. Talking, talking with Dr. Bruning was a great pleasure for me. And it gave me a sense of freedom to accept certain parts of myself that are just innate and to continue to work on developing skills and developing ways of improvement yet to be accepting to some of my hardwiring. This is a refreshing look at mental health um, coming from 
long histories of cognitive behavioral therapy and other modalities that challenge some of these inner drivers, this allows for a different perspective, one that I think is necessary to balance some of the more cognitive uh, behavioral approaches of mental health. So thank you again for tuning in. Please like this episode on your podcast player. I am really enjoying doing this and I want to continue to grow this medium for you and for my practice and for all the people that we interview. We want to get these episodes out there. And the only way to do it is if you share them and if you comment and rate our show and let people know about it. Otherwise, it's just another podcast that's sitting on a cloud somewhere. So thank you for doing that. And if you have any comments for me, please let me know. And I look forward to further episodes with you. Have a great week.